You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hello and welcome to a special joint episode of the Archaeology Podcast and the CRM Archaeology Podcast. I'm Chris Webster and today I'm joined by hosts from both podcasts to talk to Dr. Stephen Holen about the 130,000 year old archaeology site that he and others recently published about in the journal Nature. We'll ask Dr. Holen the hard questions and get the real science behind the story. Hello and welcome to a special joint episode of the Archaeology Podcast and the CRM Archaeology Podcast. We'll talk about why this is releasing on both channels in just a little bit. First, though, I'd like to welcome my co-hosts. Uh, from the Archaeology Show, we have April Camp Whitaker in Arizona. Hey, everyone. And from the CRM Archaeology Podcast, we have Sonia Hootmacher in Utah. Hello. All right. So today, uh, you guys may have heard, we're, we're actually having a quick turnaround on this because the, the story is out there and we want people to have the right information and, and so we can get this out there and discuss it. But you've probably seen something about the, the reported 130,000-year-old archaeological site in San Diego that was just reported in the journal Nature last week, um, April 26th, I believe, if you're listening to this at some weird time in the future. So... To talk about that, we're going to bring on Dr. Stephen Holen, who was, um, you know, part of this nature. He was a lead author on the nature letter that went out. Um, Stephen Holen is a archaeologist and director of the Center for American Paleolithic Research. He published the letter Nature on uh, with co-authors uh, on April 26, 2017. So we're going to talk about what this paper is, what they reported, and then what the findings are and, and kind of what this all means for the future of archaeology. So before we get to that, welcome to the show, Dr. Holen. Well, that's nice to be here. I'm looking forward to talking with everyone. Excellent. So, and we'll get to, again, we'll get to why we're bringing a CRM component into this once we once we get, uh, get this off the ground. But first, Dr. Holen, why don't you tell the audience, in case they're not familiar with what we're talking about here, because we do aim for a general audience with the archaeology show, so their their Facebook feeds might not be blowing up with articles like us archaeologists are. <laughs> but um, why don't you tell them, what is the site? What are we talking about here? Well, this uh, started off as a paleontological site. It was found by San Diego Natural History Museum paleontologists in 1992 on a kind of a routine monitoring project uh, along Route 54 in southern in the city of San Diego, right next to National City. And the monitor on the site was Richard Cerruti, who uh, kind of he's a he worked for the museum for many years as a field paleontologist, just retired very recently, and he also has done a lot of archaeology in his career as a as an avocational archaeologist. He's also an expert flint napper. So uh, he was the monitor when a backhoe clipped off uh, a tusk that was actually stuck vertically into hmm. the ground, and so you just saw the cross section of it where they where they popped this thing off, and there were some uh, large cobbles there and some fractured mastodon bone pieces, and so. 
they stopped that construction right away. They got his boss, Tom Demeray, the, the curator of paleontology and the head of the paleo services here, to come out and look at it. And so they decided that this may have some archaeological potential. And this is absolutely amazing that a paleontological crew would stop what they were doing, look at this, clean up the, the, the disturbed deposit, and then they set up a one-meter grid over it and excavated it as if it was an archaeological site. In other words, everything over two centimeters in diameter is mapped in in great mm -hmm. detail at the site. So um, they did a really good job of excavating it, and they excavated it over the next five months into 1993. Uh, they wrote a report on it, their kind of paleontological slash suggesting it's an archaeological site report and turned it into Caltrans, the, the Colorado transportation system who, who they contract with to do this work. And um, they always wanted to publish something on it, but I, I think uh, they, you know, they, they just didn't feel comfortable, I think, or didn't feel maybe that they had enough expertise to publish an archaeological article on this. Mm -hmm. And so I heard about this site in the late 1990s from Dr. Rob Bonnickson, the director of the Center for the Study of the First Americans, who's now gone. Uh, but uh, And I tucked it safely away in my mind to be forgotten. And then uh, an avocational archaeologist gave me a, a book by... Chris Hardiker, kind of a conspiracy, I guess you call it a conspiracy theory book about this really old site in Mexico called Valsequillo, way at Laco. And in the back of that, there was a mention of the National City site, and this was in 2008. And I thought, oh, yes, I remember. Uh, Rob, Rob Bonnickson thought this was probably an archaeological site, and I should go out and look at it. So my wife and I came out to look at it. And so they're pulling out drawer after drawer of fractured mammoth, um, fractured Macedon bone and all of these large cobbles, five large cobbles. And then I started looking at this because I've excavated numerous mammoth sites in the Great Plains that show impact fractures on the big femurs, the big limb bones, and bone flaking. And I've published some articles on this suggesting humans were in the Great Plains between 20 and 40,000 years ago based on this evidence hmm. in some pretty major journals. Uh, we didn't ever find rocks with those out in the Great Plains, so uh, a lot of people didn't really accept our research, but some people did. But I recognize these patterns on the Saruti Macedon. We had an impact notch. We had uh, little flakes called what we call cone flakes that form around an impact notch when a big stone hammer hits hits the fever. And uh, so what we did was look at the distribution of these things, and there were two concentrations of broken, fractured bone around two cobbles. Um, and all of the impact, almost all of the impact events, I, I, I don't remember the exact number, but like 15 of 17 impact events that we could see on the bone or pieces of evidence from impact events that we could see on the bone were concentrated right around those two cobbles which we're now interpreting as anvils. Um, then the big rocks themselves, um, one of them uh, hit an anvil, apparently. A hammer hit an anvil and broke to pieces, and a lot of those fragments are right around this anvil, yet the big piece is a few feet away. I'm sure someone was quite unhappy when they broke their big hammer at this point. Um, so we got some refits with stone. We got a few re refits with bone. But what was interesting was big segments of 
both femurs were missing. Uh, and we interpret this presently that people were breaking these bones up to take pieces away to make bone tools with because this big, thick cortical bone on mammoths and mastodons has been used for tool stone, we'll call it, uh, for 1.5 million years. It, going back in several sites in Africa, we see people are breaking up uh, elephant bones. And there's a, about a 1.5 million year old Acheulean hand axe in Africa made of elephant limb bone. Oh, wow. And uh, near Rome and Italy, around 350,000 years ago, there are three or four sites where they used elephant limb bone to make Acheulean hand axes because the stone around there wasn't very good quality and wasn't really big enough to make hand axes. So this stuff is perfectly good material to make tools out of. Um, you know, probably not quite as good as stone, but you'll use it when you need to, or it's good for making expedient tools. And we've seen this quite a bit out in the Great Plains. We've also seen it at a Clovis site in the Great Plains, the Lang Ferguson site. And there people were, they killed uh, two mammoths, a juvenile and a female. And then they got in and, and got some of the bones out and they actually made a big cleaver out of the head of the scapula. It's bifacially flaked. And then they made several sharp flakes. And one of the sharp flakes was actually driven in between two vertebrae. And, and this site is dated within the Clovis range at, at 11,000 radiocarbon years ago. Uh, there was one stone knife in with the skeleton and, and we're in an erosional uh, situation just right near there. There were two Clovis points in the same stratigraphic level. So we know that Clovis people were doing this. We know Paleolithic people back in the old world were doing this kind of technology. And here it was uh, setting right in front of our face uh, when we came out here to California. But the problem was we knew right away that it was so old, you know, that the calcium carbonate rinds on some of these rocks is a half inch thick. And it's just, you know, you can just see that this has, has to be tens of thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. So I shook my head and go, well, this goes against everything that I've ever been taught, everything that I think I know, because I knew this is older than 30 or 40,000 years, just looking at the whole situation. And... Um, I just couldn't get my head around it. My wife would keep looking at me and I'd be staring off into space and she'd say, what's wrong with you? And I'd say, I, I can't get my head around this. This just this, this can't be. <laughs> it can't be an archaeological site this old because I surely had never looked in 130,000 year old deposits, but we didn't know how old it was at that time. We just knew it was mm -hmm. really old. So I'll stop there and maybe let you uh, <laughs> guide me in a different direction. You know, I'm wondering, you know, we, I want to kind of go through the evidence and some other things now. Um, so first off, there's, I mean, there's other mastodon sites in, in this, in Southern California, presumably, um, do any look remotely like this with the similar kind of fractures and things, but don't have any stone apparent stone tools in association with them or anything like that? Uh, not that we know of, but I should also add within this same, this excavation was maybe two or 300 meters long mm -hmm. and maybe uh, three or four meters deep and they moved a lot of earth out of here. And the paleontological crew found uh, horse, camel, dire wolf, ground sloth, uh, you know, some other uh, distributions of bone there. And none of them showed this green fract spiral fractured bone with impact points on it. And none of these other animals had uh, uh, rocks associated with it. And mm -hmm. I should add that this is a, very fine-grained silt and sand. It's a, what's called an overbank deposit. It forms along streams. And when okay. you get a raise in the water, it's a very gentle, they just brings in a little bit of silt each year, a little bit of sand, but it's a very gentle flow. It's not, there's, it's not a flood deposit at all. 
and it would take a tremendous flood. One of these rocks weighs over 30 pounds, hmm. and it would take a tremendous flood to move a 30-pound rock, and all the little tiny bone fragments would be washed away if you got a flood like that. So, right. so we can eliminate that natural process. We can also eliminate carnivores. There's absolutely no real evidence of carnivore damage on any of this bone, and there's no real evidence of trampling like if another mastodon came along and trampled on the bone because... Uh, the lighter bones, like ribs and vertebrae, some of them are complete, hmm. and and the big limb bones are just smashed all to pieces. So uh, you know you can eliminate trampling, and basically we can eliminate every natural process that potentially could break bones this thick. Uh, carnivore, there's never been a carnivore, even the giant short-faced bear, that could break a mammoth or a mastodon femur at mid shaft, and these are all broken at mid shaft. So they'll chew on the ends, and they can chew the ends off these bones and get the you know, the marrow out of the ends, but they can't break off these big, thick cortical uh, limb fragments that, you know, an inch and a half thick or so. So a uh, uh, quick question, and it's actually more uh, for the general public and uh, individuals who are not as uh, familiar with um, uh, place, Pleistocene um, animals. Um, specifically, could you kind of give an idea uh, to us of, of what the difference between a mammoth and a mastodon is, kind of in terms of size, density, um, hairiness, okay. <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, well, at this time, uh, you know, the mammoths are taller and bigger, uh, and they eat grass. And if you look at their teeth, they're like big grinding stones. So they're grass specialists, and they are found more in grassland environments. We, we get a lot more mammoths out in the Great Plains. And then when you get into the Midwest, where there are a lot more trees, then you get mastodons because mastodon teeth are kind of domed and uh, they are good at eating uh, leaves and brush and spruce branches and things like that. So they live in very different ecological zones. So even when you find them, it'll tell you a little bit of what, what the ecology was like around there at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, mammoth was taller and more slender. They probably weighed about the same. The mastodon was shorter and thicker and the bones are bigger around and they were built more like a little tank. So, hmm. uh, but their uh, mammoths are an old world development. Uh, they came into North America across the Bering Land Bridge maybe about 1.7 million years ago. But mastodons are an uh, American mastodon is an indigenous species here in North America, it evolved here, and has been pretty much the same for the last 2.5 million years. We really right. don't know how much hair they had on them. We see artist renditions, but uh, I don't think anybody anybody knows for sure how much hair either one of them had on them. But so, kind of just just to clarify, most of the uh, the the frozen and ice ice mammoths that we see are actually mammoths. So that's why are, we see the the hairiness and the and the uh, those are, fatty uh, hump. Yeah, the the ones we find frozen and ice are actually woolly mammoths, where the ones we have down here are Colombian mammoths. Colombian mammoths are the descendants of the mammoths that came in 1.7 million years ago. Woolly mammoths uh, uh, evolved in Siberia a, a few hundred thousand years ago. I don't remember the exact number or don't even know if they know for sure, and then spread out from there. And they're adapted to full Arctic conditions, and uh, they have a lot of hair on them, and they have a lot of fat on them. So. Thank you. Most of us archaeologists here in uh, the U.S. aren't aren't uh, paleoarchaeologists, <laughs> yeah. simply because we just don't have that much opportunity to study them. Right, right. <laughs> and I have a quick follow-up too. Again, for our more general audience, okay. um, can we just do a quick cover of 
what the current theory is about when humans arrived in the United States or in the continental uh, North America. I'll give you the most commonly accepted theory. Then I'll <laughs> that would be, the, yes, the exactly. Opinion, the minority opinion, and then this new one kind of throws both of those out. But so <laughs> That's perfect. So the, I think the current general opinion that most archaeologists would accept is that uh, people came into North America via the west coast, along the west coast of North America, about uh, 15,000 calendar years ago. Uh, and I think you know, the majority of archaeologists probably accept that. I think, uh, you know, the Clovis first hypothesis has kind of died down. There's still a few people that believe that, but not too awful many. But uh, then there's kind of a minority opinion, and that's my wife and I and a few other people that think humans came in during the mid-Wisconsin and before Canada was covered from coast to coast with ice during what's called the last glacial maximum. Uh, when they could come down along the east side of the Rocky Mountains and they got into the Great Plains sometime between uh, 22 and 40,000 years ago. There's all, there are also sites in Brazil, several rock shelter sites down there that date between say 20 to 35,000 years ago. And they have these broken uh, small cobbles or large pebbles and a few flakes taken off of them. And a lot of archeologists from up here that have looked at them didn't uh, ever accept them as stone tools. But there's a very good French team of archaeologists working on these down there. And the French are really good lithic technologists. They really understand lithic technology very well. And they, they say these are stone tools, and then they backed it up with doing use-wear analysis on them. And they have uh, use-wear from cutting both uh, hard and soft materials. And in my opinion, it's pretty hard to argue with use-wear on stone tools. So, you know, I think there were people in, in the middle of Brazil, you know, 25, 30,000, maybe 35,000 years ago and on the Great Plains. But that's the minority opinion. Okay. All right. Well, you know, we're going to go to break here in a second and we'll come back and, and continue talking about this. But I, I would like to point out just, you know, for our listeners and for, I, I hope other people that have, you know, that formed opinions on this, um, on this article and this discovery and, and what it means based on maybe some media articles they read and things like that. But the, the majority opinion and even the, you know, sort of secondary minority opinion, those are both based on evidence that people have seen, right? So when you find new evidence for something as a scientist, you start changing and shifting what you know as, as the accepted truth. I mean, I mean, just to, to bring it back to uh, paleoanthropologist a little bit, for the last hundred years, every time they found something, they rewrote the tree. You know, every time they found something new, they rewrote the textbooks and said, well, this is true now. And then they find something else and said, this is true now. And that's kind of how science works. We find something and then we replace what we knew. We add it to our, we add it to our, you know, our vocabulary. We add it to our, our, our ideas of what the past was like, and then we move on. So let's come back to that. And I think we're going to pick it up with a little bit of, uh, a little bit of paleoanthropology here in a second, right after the break. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. Let's get back to the show. 
Okay, we're back. And before we get into, I think, a little bit more about this site, I just want to bring back some of our more savvy listeners might be thinking, because this is the first thing I thought of when I first saw this article, was I thought of Louis Leakey working in Southern California. Um, you know, how does this compare to what Louis Leakey was doing here? And Louis, Louis Leakey, for those that don't know, was a, a famous paleoanthropologist, you know, half of the amazing team of Louis Leakey and Mary Leakey that did a lot of the big discoveries in Tanzania and Kenya in uh, Africa back in the, you know, from the 30s on through the 60s, 70s, and I think Mary Leakey even into the 80s and possibly 90s. Um, but how does this compare to the site that Lewis Leakey was invited to look at back in the 60s, I believe it was, in Southern California? Well, this site is a lot better because of the geological situation. To have mm -hmm. a good uh, archaeological site, you have to have a good stratigraphic situation. So here we have uh, broken, we have big rocks that couldn't have washed into the site. They had to be brought there by humans because, you know, the, the water deposited silts and sands are so fine, it, it's very gentle deposition. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's the difference with the calico site that they worked on out in the desert. There's a big alluvial fan there. There's a lot of broken rock uh, in the fan. And so then you have to try to sort out what humans broke, if indeed there were any humans there breaking anything, which I have no idea. Um, I, I've never accepted it myself, but I'm not one to say. I'm, but, but I would not want to work on a site like that where there's all that naturally broken rock and then try to sort out if there is a, a few pieces that humans made. I think it would be, in my opinion, next to impossible to do that. So that's the big difference, the geological situation. We have a great geological situation. It's easy to interpret. We had a geomorph, we've had, the paleontologists that worked on it are really good geologists themselves, but I insisted on bringing in a, a stratigrapher, a soils person, geomorphologist, an expert, one of the best young uh, Geoarchaeologist in North America, Jared Beaton from Adams State University, and he did fine detailed descriptions of the soils and sediment analysis and particle size analysis and all this stuff and completely defined stratigraphic sequence and said, you know, this is very fine grained, low energy uh, deposits from overbank, you know, slight floods. And then a, then a very then a, a horizon formed on top top of it, and that's why you get all the calcium and carbonate concretions mm -hmm. on the bones and the rocks. So so that's the difference between the two sites. One's a good geological situation, and one isn't. All right. Well, let's move a little bit more to the dating techniques because I think obviously that's the the most controversial aspect of this. Um, I, I honestly I honestly don't know if anybody that actually reads the article and sees how this was excavated and mapped, and then you know looks at the experimental. Um, stuff that was done and says, yeah, this definitely looks like a human created archaeological site. I mean, that just that's that seems unequivocal to me after reading the article. Um, but the question is the dating. So I, I read in the article that you guys tried um, or, or somebody tried uh, radiocarbon dating, but there wasn't enough collagen in the bones to do that. Um, and then I saw thermoluminescence, I think, was tried. And then finally, the uranium thoron dating. So, could you speak a little bit about the uh, the dating methods, and the projection, the the how you went up to that, and what led to the uranium thoron, and if there's any other dating methods you guys are considering to kind of narrow this down even farther? Uh, yes. Uh, before I got involved, they tried a radiocarbon date on tusk, and and of course, there's no collagen left in tusks. Uh, mm -hmm. And then when I got involved, we tried uh, we we cut into the root of a molar. And it looked like there might be a little bit of collagen preserved in there under the microscope. So we sent it to a lab and the lab said they, they put it in the acid solution and they could see some little spicules that looked like collagen 
but but about a day before they took it out of the acid bath, that stuff disappeared. So there really wasn't any collagen, well, good enough in there to try anything. And we now know that site's too old for radiocarbon anyway. So uh, the next thing we tried was optical stimulated luminescence. So we had had a fellow run two sets of those, and when this, of course, works. There's little quartz particles, and once they get buried, they develop a form of energy from the uh, from the uranium and things in the, in the ground around them. And I, I'm not a physicist. This is above my grade level here, <laughs> but I'm going to try to explain it to you, okay? Okay. And then so you, you gather those in a tube, and they take it into a dark lab, and they get the quartz particles out, and they excite it with some form of light, and they, and they give off energy uh, as in the form of light. The, the dating we got from those two series indicated that the site is a minimum of 60 to 70,000 years old. Because those quartz particles, the, the little traps in there were completely saturated, almost saturated. So, so all you could get was a minimum age out of it. Uh, but we wanted to really a more accurate age. And obviously, I had never tried uranium series. Everything I've ever worked on before, you could radiocarbon date either the soil or the bone or something, you know. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, so then we decided to try uranium series, and I'd met uh, Jim Paces of the U.S. Geological Survey in Denver on another project, and uh, I asked him if he would consider trying this. And so he, uh, we sent him some bone samples, and he did some kind of preliminary tests on it and said, well, it looks like it's, you know, 110 to 120,000 years old, and he thought we would probably just drop the project at that point, <laughs> which we didn't. Uh, and we... Then we got him to do a much more detailed study where we sent him thick cortical pieces of this limb bone, and he would take samples every few, every two millimeters or so all the way through the bone and date it all the way through, which is what you have to do because uranium is water soluble and it goes into the bone out of the water in the soil and water can leach the uranium back out of the out of the bone. But if you get the same date all the way through the bone, then you know it's accurate. And then they do all kinds of statistical manipulations on these dates. And he came up with a date of uh, just over 130,000 plus or minus about 9,000 years. Um, and this fits the geology of the site. As far as we can tell, those calcium carbonate concretions like that take tens of thousands of years to develop. Uh -huh. That, that thick. And it also seems to fit with what's called the Nestor Terrace here along, you know, San Diego. It's a raised marine terrace that was deposited 120,000 years ago when there was a high stand of water during uh, a very warm period, actually warmer than today, and the sea level was higher than today. So this, you can correlate this up the valley pretty well, and it looks like it's in that same terrace fill. So we're pretty confident about the dating. I, I, uh, we're also thinking about trying uh, ESR dating. In fact, we talked about doing it earlier, but they need quite a bit of enamel and the paleontologists uh, mm -hmm. are kind of reluctant to destroy a mastodon tooth to do this dating technique. But we're gonna keep looking at it and we can find a lab that only needs a small fragment and not you know, half a tooth or something. Uh, we may try to use ESR dating, which is often used in combination with uranium series dating. So. And that's that's electron spin resonance, right, for our listeners? Yes. And, yeah. I, and believe me, I don't know anything about that dating technique <laughs> yeah, at all. Me either. I mean, uranium yeah. series is, is fairly simple. The the bone takes up uranium from, from the water and the soil around it, and then that uranium breaks down into thorium at a mm -hmm. known rate. And that's about as much as I know about it. So I, I can't really explain it in any more detail. So Yeah, well, you know, just a quick note on dating for others too, you know, radioactive 
dating techniques are really great because, you know, things decay at a predictable half-life and sometimes they decay into other elements. And so, you know, measuring the quantity of one versus another, as long as you know the starting point um, or you can guess the starting point, then you can you can kind of figure out just simple math how long that took. So, um, okay, well, you know, it seems to me, like I said, that this this is very well researched. You've got multiple lines of evidence that that all lead to a similar conclusion. Um, what do you say to some of the people that are that are that are not buying this? Just to put it bluntly, <laughs> you know, how do we how do we go about their attitudes and, and kind of adjusting that? Well, a, a lot of the people that are coming out and really kind of you know downplaying this or saying we're, we just don't know what we're doing or whatever. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of these people have been writing article after article and book after book stating that they know when humans came into North America. And, and they've been doing it for years and they are very powerful individuals in the academic community. And uh, they, are, they have made their reputation saying certain things and you don't think they're gonna change their mind overnight based on this one site. It's just not gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really think that we're going to start looking for other sites in Southern California of this age. We have, I can I guess I can say we have a lead on one mm-hmm. uh, that you know may be another one of these sites. Um, so, uh, and I'm going to actually move out here this winter from South Dakota and live here part of the winter and do some active field research with some of my colleagues on this uh, on this publication. And I should add, this is a very interdisciplinary team. We have you know, three paleontologists, three archaeologists, a geomorphologist, a geochronologist. So we, we approached it with knowledge from many different angles, you know, and the, each paleontologist has a certain area of expertise. Uh, Dan Fisher is the leading expert on mastodons in the world, and he's excavated a lot of mastodon sites in Michigan, a lot of them that show the same fracture patterns as this. Um, Tom Demeray has done more paleontology in San Diego than anybody else ever. And uh, and then George Jefferson has worked uh, in La Brea and then out at Anza Brego Park for you know the last 30 years or more. And has, he's a real expert on late Pleistocene fauna in Southern California. We brought in Richard Fulliger from, from Australia. He is an expert on usware analysis on groundstone tools like grinding grinding tools mm-hmm. or you know, grind stones, and also on pounding tools, hammers and anvils. And we sent him three pieces of these cobbles that appeared to have macroscopic wear on them. We sent them to Australia. We did not tell him how old the site was. We, we wanted a completely independent opinion. And so he got back in touch with us. He said, one is definitely a tool and the other two are probably tools. And we go, well, the site's 130,000 years old. And he goes, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and he said, well, you know what? I'm a scientist. I stand by my interpretation. You know, that's what, that's what my interpretation is. That's what I saw. So we flew him to San Diego, and he looked at all of the rocks for four days in great detail. And Tom Demery, the, the curator of paleontology, and I were here with him all the time, and we both learned a lot during that period. He's a very good scientist, and he's working at some of the be- – most interesting sites in the world. Uh, for example, Denisova Cave in southern Siberia, mm-hmm. where they've got 22 cultural layers going back over 150,000 years, you know, Neanderthal stuff. And he's doing the usewear on a lot of the tools there. He's also working on the, the cave site in Indonesia where they found the little Floresiensis guys. Oh, yeah. So that's a big, he's doing the usewear on some of those tools too. He's doing usewear on one of the oldest sites in Vietnam. And uh, he's also, 
working on really early sites in Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think some of that will be published not too, in the not too distant future. So yeah, he's an expert on the peopling of Australia. So we were really glad to have him on our team. When you got somebody that good, it makes you look good. Nice. Well, it sounds, so, sounds like all you're missing is, uh, is an archeological podcaster on your team, but uh, we'll talk about that yeah, later. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, Maybe we'll maybe we'll have some other things to podcast about here in the next year. It, it, so. it sounds like you might. You know, along those lines, um, is this causing a second look at some other sites that have been found uh, that you know maybe weren't analyzed like this? Yes, yes, we're going back into museum collections, and that's the way uh, Kathy, my wife, and I work. She's my wife and co-partner, and also nice. an author on this and an expert on bone breakage. Um, we're going back into museum paleontological collections and museums and looking for evidence of this. Sometimes the best evidence wasn't collected because it was just little fragments and so forth. But uh, Kathy and I, I should also add, have done two experiments where we broke elephant femurs, uh, one in Africa, and we broke an elephant femur, and um, we produced the same kind of fracture patterns that we see on the Sruti mastodon limbo. Um, so that's been that was really interesting. And that was before we got involved in this research. And then after we got involved in this research, we did another experiment in our backyard when we lived in Colorado and broke another elephant femur and some other limb bones. And in this case, we had to use a 32 and a half pound handheld rock and set the femur up on an anvil and have another person hold the femur on the anvil. And I literally couldn't break it because I wasn't strong enough. I had to get a big, strong graduate student on there who could just really bang on it. So. Uh, it takes a real strong person to do this, and it takes a 32 and a half pound rock to break these things. Mm -hmm. So, if you're just holding the rock, and that's about the size of this one big rock in the Cerruti Mastodon site. So. Okay. So we reproduced that. Yeah. Well, that's great, and I think that's one of the images in the um, in the data set uh, associated with the paper. There's an image of somebody, yeah. you know, holding that and trying to. It, it's a massive rock that's in the person's hands. <laughs> Right. And I encourage everyone not to just read the article and the methods and, and the extended data figures. There's mm -hmm. about between 60 and 70 pages of supplementary information in yeah. which we pack up all of this. And there's also supplementary videos where uh, Dan Fisher of the University of Michigan, a paleontologist, the leading expert on mastodons, he took the, uh, the very interesting pieces of small flakes of bone that are produced around the impact point and and did 3d images of them and you can twirl them and look them on your look at them on your viewer in, in three dimensions and twirl them around and he also mm -hmm. did that with the rock refits on the big hammer and you can put them put the fragments back together and pull them apart and also we have a movie of us in tanzania africa and i'm trying to break this elephant femur too and again i had to get a big strong graduate <laughs> student on there the first time to break it so uh, and uh, it's kind of interesting to watch that video to see how really difficult it is to break these bones. I can imagine. Yeah. So uh, I had a couple of questions for you about some of the geoarchaeological analyses that were done. Um, I have a degree in geology and I'm also a professional geologist and uh, um, have a, a great deal of interest in, in um, calcium, calcium carbonate studies in the western U.S. So I was curious to know if your geoarchaeologists had done any calcium carbonate studies on the con contextual soils to establish age. Um, calcium carbonate's not 100% reliable, it's just a good estimate. So I was kind of specifically wondering if uh, those calcium carbonate studies had been done, like specifically grams of, of carbonate uh, per uh, square centimeter for each soil column. Um, 
Berkland's got some interesting analyses that I, uh, I've used in some of my GeoArc studies in the Great Basin, and I just wanted to know if you'd done anything. Uh, no, we haven't, but we would invite you to come and look at this and give us your opinion. <laughs> oh, oh, <Seriously>. okay. <laughs> no, well, thank no, you. The, no, the geo, the geomorphologist stratigraphy did the standard soil descriptions and you know particle size analysis, clay versus sand, and so forth like that. Okay. Uh, okay. And he looked, and he looked at the calcium carbonate development, and he's from the Great Plains also. So I kind of brought in people I knew from the Great Plains. Uh, because I was comfortable working with them and I knew they did, did a good job. But he said he looked at this buried soil uh, and the calcium carbonate development on the bones and rocks in the, in the B horizon of the soil and said if that were out in the Great Plains, that would be equivalent with, uh, with the warm period at the time that we have dated this uh, Mastodon site to. In other words, 120 to 130,000. There's a, there's a big thick soil out in the Great Plains and that's the kind of calcium carbonate concretion development you get from that soil out there. So we would, you working out west here further, we would really like to have you come and look at this and tell us your opinion because like I say, maybe there's something else that can be learned from this. And we're very excited to have other scholars come in that know things that we don't know or haven't done or whatever. So there's your invitation. Well, thank you very much. I'd, I'd actually love to come out and see it. Um, calcium carbonate's always been one of my interests for uh, geomorphologic you know, studies and um, especially out here in the West, where we don't have a lot of soil development, uh, but we do have a lot of calcium carbonate deposit. So just because yep. of all the water, we have so, a major soil development at this site. So oh, fantastic! Yes. Even it's better. Nice. Yeah. So definitely yeah. something I'd be interested in. So you should contact Dr. Tom Demery, the curator of paleontology here, who's in charge of the collection, and I'll tell him of your interest. And uh, so I, that will work out well. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. Well, let's go to one last break real quick, and then we'll come back and, and spend a few minutes talking about where we go from here. Back in a second. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries. Hoax or fact? Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny bitty blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. Okay, we're back. Um, so, as I said at the beginning, we're cross-listing this with the CRM uh, Archaeology podcast, and that was really based on the initial conversation that Dr. Holland and I had about this uh, a few days ago. So, Dr. Holland, why or why are we putting this on the CRM Archaeology podcast? Why is that important? <laughs> well, in my opinion. CRM archaeologists do 95% of the archaeology in this country. So mm -hmm. it's very important that CRM archaeologists know about this. And even if they don't completely believe it, please keep your eye open when you're out in the field and look in these older deposits and see what you find there. If you find something interesting and you don't know how old it is and you know need any help, you can contact me You know if it's fractured bone. Uh, there's other people that are better probably for stone tools, although I know a lot about those too. But um, but I think it's 
to have an open mind, I think that's the most important thing. It would be very important if uh, early humans were in North America 130,000 years ago, and in my opinion, it would completely change the CRM field because you would have many thousands of years more of deposits to look in. And uh, so I think that's that's very important to, to think about, you know, if you extend this back in time. Obviously, we don't know if these people got in here, if they made it or not, they could have become extinct. That's that's a possibility that other people have talked about before, that people might have got in early, became extinct, another group came in and became extinct. We could have had multiple migrations, that, and some of which that didn't make it. Uh, but we don't have any evidence about any of that right now. It's just something to think about. So, yeah, I, I really want CRM archaeologists to, especially young CRM archaeologists who still have an open mind and and maybe don't know all the answers to everything. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> That, that right. we're trying to reach, we're trying to reach the young people. That's we think that the next generation, you know, I'm 68 years old. Uh, I'm not going to do a lot more archaeology in my career, but I'm going to do it as long as I can. But we want the younger generation to move in on this problem and keep working on it and find out, you know, uh, what we can and when people really came into North America and how long they were here and if they became extinct or not. Or you know, there's just so much new. Uh, evidence that could be gained if people would look in older deposits, I think. Yeah, I, I think the length of your career is directly proportional to how many 32-pound rocks you try to crush bones with. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to be like that anymore either. <laughs> so from the from the CRM perspective, I mean, we always want to encourage our, our young archaeologists and just our archaeologists in general to, uh, to identify uh, things at the ground surface and during excavations. I mean, we want them to to keep their eyes open. But one of the biggest issues of concern, especially here in the West anyway, um, is, is that if we are putting in a 36-inch pipeline, uh, whether that be water or sewer or gas or whatever, and we have an eight-foot hole, and we might, f uh, there's really no reason for us to dig any deeper or look any deeper uh, for resources. And it's not that we don't want to, but this is a big issue with our clients. Um, you know, uh, a lot of our clients say to us, your job, and to a degree they're right, your job is to identify and evaluate and make a recommendation uh, for archaeological sites. And we do that. Um, that's our first, like in the East, we'd call that phase one, identify and evaluate, or uh, identify and um, yeah, identify and evaluate the sites. Make Sometimes making a recommendation for eligibility is involved in that, and sometimes that's moved on to a phase two. So that's from the east. Um, in the west, we do make recommendations based on what we see at the ground surface or in the holes that we dig uh, for preliminary studies. Um, but our job at the very beginning is not to do science. And uh, though we want to do science, that's not what our what our clients hire us to do. And uh, we want to encourage our young people to identify things, of course. But what, what happens when we hit, uh, when we hit a mastodon um, uh, tusk uh, in, in, the, um, in, in context? Um, do we need to dig it up? That's the question. Um, or, I mean, if it's right at, right at the top of a um, or at the bottom of a trench, do we need to continue digging or should we leave that in place? So that's where we start getting into a really gray area with our clients. 
their their drive for uh, schedule money and all their their issues um, it does that it does that override our research or um, our our drive for getting the information out of the ground or do we just leave those things in the ground for and I put this in quotes future generations you know identify that it's maybe present and leave it in the ground right well I think you have one other option that you might not be talking about so if you find sure. something like that and and it's you know it's right on the edge of your construction area and and there's no real reason for them to pay for it to excavate it let's say uh, give me a call we have money to we have seed money to give people to go out and do projects outside of you know the CRM field do actual research in fact our little organization gave forty five hundred dollars to a group in Mexico that were testing this deep cave site and uh, they just needed some seed money to demonstrate that there are pre-Clovis components there, which they've done, and now they're going after a big grant from, from the federal government in Mexico and we hope they get it. So we have seed money to kind of go in and, and maybe do a little bit more than you can do if we can get permission to do it on the land, of course. So um, that's, that's the option that I would suggest is then if, if the CRM, if you can't do it under CRM, get a hold of some researchers that have a little bit of funding and get them involved. And, and maybe that way you can do some research also in joint with them. Okay. That's great. That's fantastic. And it's something that a lot of us don't know about uh, because we are so stuck in cultural resource management. Uh, we don't we aren't familiar with funding sources for for research, well, and uh, this is this is fantastic opportunity for CRM to work jointly with research. Right, uh, and, and which I is think great. there's other institutions like this institution and other institutions that would be willing to get involved too and put some resources to it. I I, I will go ahead and tell you that uh, the best some of the best research that I've ever done in my career, and the reason that I got into this fractured mammoth bone stuff was at a site in Nebraska, at the uh, Lusana site at Medicine Creek Reservoir in southwest Nebraska. There was a mammoth eroding out of a cut bank of a Bureau of Reclamation Reservoir, and they gave me money to go in and test this. And this was this is a last glacial maximum, you know, 18,000 radiocarbon-year-old mammoth, and it's the first place I run into impact fractured and flaked mammoth bone. And uh, now I found several of those sites on Bureau of Reclamation Reservoirs out there, and they have put a lot of money into getting these sites excavated to salvage them because they were eroding away. So I, I had a very lucky opportunity doing CRM to get to do a lot of research within the CRM framework, and sometimes you can work that out well if you find a site that's eroding away on a reservoir, and they'll, and they'll keep funding it to, to keep being destroyed. That's great news. Thank you so much for, for letting us know. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, you know, just to kind of start wrapping this up, um, you know, Dr. Holland, I'm interested in your opinion on this. We've talked about some future research directions you guys are going with a possible another site you're looking at and then, um, you know, taking a second look at some other collections. But I know as archaeologists do, you know, at the end of the day, you're you and your colleagues and your wife and you're sitting around, you're maybe having a glass of wine or a beer or something like that. And you're trying to figure out how the heck did people get here 130,000 years ago? <laughs> what um, without saying these are published ideas or anything like that, you know, what are some of your thoughts on how this could possibly have come about? Well, I would encourage everyone to go. There's a, there's a link uh, within the Nature Letter to our supplementary information, and the last section in there we we discuss this. 
but of course this at this point has to be very speculative absolutely you know, we really, yeah. we really don't know which uh, which uh, species of the genus homo got into north america at this time mm -hmm. but we suggest the possibilities um uh homo uh neanderthalensis was in southern siberia probably more than 150,000 years ago uh, and we have a site, Deering site, at 60 degrees north that dates about 260 to 350,000 years ago, and that's yeah, that's pretty far north. Um, mm -hmm. Then we have the elusive Denisovans that are only known basically from DNA from Denisova Cave in southern Siberia, and it, known from one finger bone and maybe two teeth. So there is a possibility that those folks got in, and the other possibility, and and those folks could have got in by land up until approximately 130,000 years ago. I, the, there was a land bridge across there during the glacial period that, that ended about 130,000 years ago. The water level uh, was coming up very rapidly and flooded flooded that, I, I don't know the exact date, but maybe 125,000 years ago. So they would have had to get in by land before that because it was shut off for thousands of years. There was water across the land bridge. The other option is we now know that people had watercraft that were capable of crossing many kilometers of water by 130,000 years ago. People got to Crete and were making hand axes. They were found in geological deposits 130,000 years old on Crete. There's never been a land bridge there. You have to cross, and I don't know the exact, maybe 20 or 25 kilometers of open water to get there. So you have to have pretty good watercraft. On the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia, people got there by some kind of watercraft 118 to 160,000 years ago. So if people can cross, you know, significant areas of open water to get to these islands, they surely could follow a coastline north as the climate warmed, uh, you know, approximately 130,000 years ago. Other animals expend, extended their uh, geographic range. Mastodons we find above the Arctic Circle, you know, during this very warm period. Uh, so why wouldn't humans expand their range uh, either by land or by watercraft and then, you know, follow the coast north with watercraft and follow the west coast uh, south down to beautiful California? Great place to live, I'm assuming then. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was I had a discussion actually just this morning with uh, somebody who's not an archaeologist or a scientist for that matter. And we were talking about this and just kind of throwing around ideas and and he was like, well, you know, if if there were people here 130,000 years ago, or not people, but, you know, descendant, you know, another population here 130,000 years ago, whoever that ends up being, um, wouldn't there be, you know, wouldn't there have been way more, you know, descendants uh, here in North America after that? And I was kind of talking to him about it. I was like, well, you know, first off, you're you're possibly right. You know, it's it's unlikely that that this site represents, you know, somebody landing on the shores of Southern California, you know, processing some bones and then going back to Europe or Africa or wherever they came from. <laughs> it's highly unlikely that's the case. So these are probably descendants of people who came here from before. You know, they didn't just suddenly appear in Southern California. But then at the same token, it's possible that populations ebbed and flowed and possibly went to the point where there was zero and there was another migration in of another set of population 50,000 years later or something, you know, and it's just not linear like that. We just can't say without more evidence, you know, what the, what the real answers are. Well, and I, any, any species you study when they're moving into new territories and are kind of out on the edge of their adaptation or their mm -hmm. abilities uh, are more prone to extinction than are the ones back in the heartland where they're well adapted. So, For so sure. that's the thing to think about. Yeah, April. So I know some of the skepticism, too, is coming from the fact that there is this giant temporal gap. Um, 
and sort of questions about why we haven't seen anything that would bridge it. And are you partly, you know, what are, what, other than the fact that we often, you know, in the field of archaeology, aren't necessarily looking deep enough um, and maybe kind of what other things are you potentially attributing to the fact that we haven't seen other human evidence that kind of bridges this giant time gap? Well, you get the nail right on the head. I, being the leading one, have never looked in uh, geological deposits this old for archaeological sites. And I'm the one out there looking in pretty old deposits, 30 to 40,000 years old. I look in regularly on the Great Plains. So, so now I'm going to start looking in older deposits. I don't think there are any active archaeologists really looking at 130,000-year-old year, deposits, you know, that I know of anyway. Uh, so, so that's the big reason. Archaeologists have never looked in old enough deposits to find these things. They ceded that territory to paleontologists. And we got lucky this time because uh, we had a, a, a paleontologist who was an avocational archaeologist and a flint napper who recognized some of these fracture patterns and stuff on these bones and knew it couldn't be natural. So. Uh, how many other of these sites have been just blown off, you know, by paleontologists? Paleontologists are not necessarily trained to recognize human technology. I know back in the in Nebraska in the good old days, if paleontologists found a site with a bunch of fractured up bones in it, they walked away and left it because they were looking for mounts for skeletons for the exhibit in the museum, and they didn't want broken up bones. And in fact, if they excavated one of those sites, they just took the diagnostic ends of the limb bones and left all the fragments in the field back in the good old days, you know, 50 or 60, <laughs> 70 years ago. So we go to the paleontological collections. Sometimes we see bits and pieces of this evidence in the paleontological collections, and then we try to go find the site, see if there's anything left of it. But, you know, uh, it's just a lack of looking, I think, is the biggest problem. And, and the fact that paleontologists don't necessarily recognize these things. Well, hopefully this uh, sparks some people to start looking because that you know it always makes me think of you know paleoanthropology just in the last hundred and fifty years or so. I mean, nobody was really looking in Africa for that kind of stuff until Louis Leakey started doing it. Nobody's looking in Indonesia until Eugene Dubois did it. I think in the late eighteen hundreds, and um, probably the same with different parts of Africa and things like that. Well, now, now maybe we can start looking in California, and you know that that brings up another question: what? What kinds of deposits should people be looking at for this kind of stuff to find good sites? You know, what are some of the signs they can look for? Well, I think, first of all, you have to look in very fine-grained, low-energy deposits. Uh, out in the Great Plains, we're very lucky because because we have windblown lust, and you can't find a, a better kind of deposit to look. You can eliminate all the geological processes that break bones in this very fine-grained deposit. But the second best is these very fine-grained, water-laid deposits, you know, because you can eliminate, you know, a lot of the geological problems that you have in sites where you have higher energy floods and things like that. Uh, you know, cave, I, I don't know, you probably don't have many cave sites out here, but cave sites are often very good places to look. You get a lot of fine-grained sediments in there. You have to be careful, you know, rock, rock fall and things like that that might break bones and so forth. So so any, any place you get low-energy, fine-grained deposits, then... Um, that's that's the best place to go look, and and you have to know, of course, the geology and the general age of what you're looking in to, you know, to go kind of target those. Right. Okay. Well, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. You're a busy man these last few days, and and probably some more coming up. <laughs> yeah. Thank, thank you very much. I'm being called away to a, a mic check for our <laughs> program this evening. So. Thank you. Nice. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Holland. And uh, hopefully we can reconnect with you later on and after some more stuff is is found out about this. Yeah, thank you. It was wonderful having you. Yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed it. 
Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArchPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. This show is edited by Christopher Sims of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Go check it out. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.